Welcome to the Crisis Podcast. My name is Travis Atkinson, and I am your host. Join me as we discover the people behind the services and systems that treat and care for those experiencing a mental health crisis. back, everyone, to the Crisis Podcast. I am your host, Travis Atkinson. Those tunes that you're hearing right there are from my band, Deep Greens and Blues. That's Susan Mora on fiddle and Matt Young on mandolin. You can find us on all the places where you listen to music. Well, now it's gone, right? Now it's just, now it's just you and me. But that's okay, because we've got a great show, and we are somewhat back to recording in-person episodes, which I am just thrilled about. Was visiting my family out in California last week and got a chance to head up to the Irvine area and hang out with my friend Pete Hyland. So Pete is a director of Psychiatric Care Services for Telecare Corporation, which provides crisis residential services and a number of other services, uh, not just in California, but all along the Pacific Coast. And I just had a great time with Pete. If we were in a classroom during this podcast, uh, the teacher probably would have separated us, honestly, uh, because we just we had a lot of fun. Uh, Pete's a great guy. Uh, as we were getting ready to record the the episode, I found out that he had a, a little stint doing theater and improv comedy uh, many years ago, and I could relate to that because I, I spent some of my um, early years after college uh, doing some improv as well. And so it just it explained a lot and uh, just got to, to spend a little bit of time with Pete and was very grateful for that. So I'm excited to share this interview with you. I also want to make you aware that Pete is also a fellow board member for the Crisis Residential Association. And so we have that in common. Pete is a great man. You're going to get to hear about his recovery story and about why the work that he does is so important to him. So we're going to get on with it. Without further ado, here is Pete Hyland. Pete Hyland, welcome to the Crisis Podcast. Thanks. Oh my gosh, this is so cool. This is I, I, um, I have a new appreciation for human contact i feel like et or something no kidding yeah no kidding <laughs> two individuals talking face to face by the way we're six feet apart oh 60 it's 100 yeah feet hundreds of feet. Uh, n- n- yes yeah. yeah no i quarantined for four weeks just to prepare for this so me too uh, me too great i did a regimen of vaccinations as well so i'm i think we're okay <laughs> some booster shots mm, easily easily so, That's awesome. So, yeah. so high colonic. I think I did a couple of high colonics. <laughs> just I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Pete, 
what do you do and why do you do it? Uh, I guess the best way to describe what I do is I'm a, a you know, the t- technical term I would use is probably mental health professional. Um, but for the, like the past 15 years, I've been working in a variety of behavioral health settings, all the way from substance abuse to most recently crisis residential and, mm-hmm. and then um, most recently, recently, uh, inpatient uh, psychiatric facilities. So, and, you know, I think uh, I do what I do uh, really because I love the engagement of talking with people. And um, I'm kind of a person who's drawn to a little bit of chaos. I don't know. I, I, I think that's what, you know, I interview people for jobs. And when I interview people for jobs in crisis work, I like that person that li- likes the excitement of crisis. And I'm one of those people. Like, I I feel like I, I got to have some crisis going on because it's exciting and the there's a there's an energy that I don't think you find in in and I don't know in a, in a normal nine to five job uh, and and I'm not knocking accountants but you know like in accounting you know what's the crisis what's going on that's but in yeah. mental health and behavioral health I think there's there's always something around the corner and then in that crisis you're talking with people and I I love talking with people I love engaging with people I love sitting across from them and and getting to know them and um uh, you know, and I think even in a part of that too is, is, uh, in my own journey, my own, uh, personal, personal kind of recovery story. I think that plays a role in it as well, but really, um, really it's the people and hanging out with them and being there. So it sounds like some of the work that you've done is not for the faint of heart, uh, that, uh, but but you're also not seeking a lot of predictability in the work that you do, or or maybe yeah. security. Yeah, that's a great way to look at. It. I never would I never would have looked at that. That I, that I avoid predictability. You know, <laughs> <laughs> never would have thought of that. Stay shifty. Yeah. Stay shifty, my friend. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, uh, you mentioned your recovery story. Let's just get right into that. So yeah. tell tell us about uh, your recovery journey and, and maybe how that influenced the work you're doing now. Well, I've been uh, you know I just celebrated 19 years. Um, on the, on the man. first, heck yeah! So three days ago, yeah, That's just awesome. celebrated 19 years of sobriety, and uh-huh. um, uh, you know, I would have, uh, you know, I would have never thought I would say those words. I guess you know, I used to, I've been, you know, I go to, I, I go to 12 step meetings, and in those 12 step meetings, we always talk about time, and it, for years, I've been saying, oh, I've got X amount of years and X amount of years, and only in the last, I'd say, three years was all of a sudden this, this like. Oh yeah, I've got 19 years of sobriety, and I was like, "Holy shit! Like that's a lot of like like that's that's a long time." I was gonna say, does that make you the old guy in the room? It, yeah. it kind of does. I'm like I'm like that old guy. So, um, but anyway, I you know I I uh, obviously I drank, obviously I used drugs, obviously I you know I I I did those things, and um, what got you into that stuff? Like what 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 drove what what drew you in? Not just to using a lot of people do that yeah, but to, yeah. to the point of it being a problem what i think what really drew me into it was this uh was you know this this i it, it worked i don't know how else to put it like you know when i talk to people who have substance abuse problems i get it like you know what you're doing totally works like if you mm-hmm. have a if you have an issue whether it's anxiety or depression or, or or you know schizophrenia or something and you use substances for a brief period of time that is a very effective coping skill. It works really well. The only problem is the coping skill generally backfires on you. So I think I got my own issues. I think I'm, you know, I'm relatively, 
I'm a relatively stable guy, but I got, you know, I, I'm, I got anxiety. I got worries. I got those things. And I grew up with those things mm. and um, probably always an anxious kid. And I think once I found substances, I found a few things. One is I found the, the ability to control the worry or the ability to control the anxiety. And the second thing was it was really accepting that people were very accepting. If you use drugs or you drink, it's an immediate bond. And I, I, I remember when I got to college, first, first day at college in my dorm, my parents left. I cried. I cried like I bawled. Like I was like, oh, they, my parents left me, and I was all, I don't know what, I was just emotional. And then the next thing I know, some guy walks into my room. He says, hey, what's your name? I said, I'm Pete. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm Tommy. Nice to meet you. You know, and, you know he says, do you, do you get high? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, they were like, sweet, best friends forever. Mm. You know, immediately. Mm -hmm. So you're immediately accepted. Yep. And I, I was really attracted to that. And, of course, it grew and grew and grew into, you know, bigger and bolder things. And yeah. it finally, you know, it came a point where I, where, and I still don't know why, but for some reason I didn't. I, I didn't have a drink one day and then I didn't have a drink the next day and I haven't had a drink for 19 years and I still, to be honest, I still don't know why, you know, that's a little unusual, maybe in recovery stories to not have a family intervention or someone, you know, stopping you, well, I, put an ultimatum down or did that happen? It happened. I, okay. I you know, I don't want to say that my, my family wasn't there. They were a huge part of my recovery and, and they were there with me. Um, but I think, uh, I think ultimately they gave me enough space to make that determination on my own. I think they, and I kind of found out about this after the fact is they, you know, they told me kind of their anxieties and their worries when I was at my complete bottom and, and just before I got sober. Um, but during my drinking, they were, they were not necessarily accepting and they would tell me, we think you drink too much, but they weren't like, we're going to you need to sit down and we're going to do an intervention that, that just wasn't the style, their style. So, um, you know, I, 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 uh, I had the, I had the opportunity of talking with a, with a therapist over the phone, a person who I'd known for a while. And, um, uh, because they had, she had talked to me when I was a kid because my parents were going through some stuff. So she did a big family therapy session with us and, she was one of those people who I talked to when I was figuring out sobriety or recovery. And um, so she was, I would say she was really instrumental. This, this mental health therapist was really, and uh, family therapist was really instrumental in me saying, okay, let me try this recovery thing. Let me try this sobriety thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I continued to see her for a while in sobriety and, um, and then, um, occasionally maybe going for a tune up, but, uh, you know, she really started the journey of it. And then of course, I, I mean, I, I owe a lot to, you know, to 12 step organizations. I really do. I think they're fabulous. I, you know, I just continue to participate in those. So I think they're a great community tool. Um, and then the fellowship friends and, uh, and family. So it's been, it's been a great journey. There's some really beautiful language in the 12 steps, um, and the the way that they phrase things that, that can just feel really relatable. And for some of the steps, you don't necessarily have to have an addiction or be in recovery in order to, to relate to them. Um, one of my favorites is uh, the, the phrase fearless moral inventory. Yeah. And I, and I use that when I'm talking to other people about whether it's strategic planning or, or developing a, a crisis program yeah. where you say, you know, you got to ask yourself like these really tough questions 
questions about, you know, who am I? Am I good? Am I am I bad? Or what what about me is needs to be um, brought into the light mm-hmm. to, uh, to say, you know, we, we got to take an honest assessment of this and we got to do something better. I'm wondering, is there a sort of step that resonates with you the most or, or mm. that, you know, you remember going through it either the first time or in some some iteration since that's stuck out to you? You know, I, I, I can't say there's a specific step that's stuck with me as far as going through that. Um, you know, what I what I resonate, what resonates with me about a 12-step program and the language used is, is there's a phrase, um, it's, uh, it's in the spiritual awakening section of the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous book, and it, uh, it says a profound alteration in my reaction to life. Mm. And that really resonates with me, that I can say, in all honesty, that I... I generally think the same of when I of when I uh, was using like my brain pattern is I still have anxiety still have worry I still have I still have those thoughts in my head you know that were there 19 years ago but I have a profound alteration in my reaction to them I don't do behaviors that I would do to arrest them or, or 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 quiet them or whatever the case may be I do different things and um and it's been a it's been a very easy phrase for me to recognize as part of my life mm. from recovery so I'm I'm always uh just impressed and appreciative of how the recovery community has generated these simple but really good ideas about how to live in community and how yeah. to help one another um and and one of those is is being generative taking your experiences no matter how painful they were yeah. and turning them into something that is maybe bigger than you but it, by helping someone else to minimize their suffering almost puts your own experience in perspective yeah i'm wondering how you have taken your experience in recovery and infused that into your career, into the work that you've been doing at, at some of these different uh, programs that you mentioned. Well, I, I certainly think that it's humbling, you know, having gone through something like that. I mean, I think there's some humility when it comes to that. And, you know, I, I really, I love the empathetic aspects that I, that I garnered from recover my own recovery and and how people were so generally accepting and and warm and empathetic when I would say you know you know this is what I you know I I did this horrible thing you know and they were like oh, well okay all right that's actually you know that's that's what happens that's what alcoholics and drug addicts do um but that doesn't make you a bad person and uh and so I take that into my work. If somebody says to me, like, this is what I'm going through. I'm thinking these thoughts. And these thoughts, these, aren't these thoughts wrong? Because often you get those people when they're coming to you, they're like, aren't, aren't I thinking something that I shouldn't be thinking? And I, and I put, might say to them, like, it's, it's not necessarily a matter of right and wrong. Right now you're going through something. Right now you're struggling with, with, with something. And that's okay. The solution to your, to your issue is 
is actually with inside your own at times it's inside your own head you know and getting through that you have the you, ha, you i think i think there's an innate human nature or an innate uh what's the word there's an there's an innate uh a possibility that people have the solutions to their problems inside inside their own mind so they go to see they go to talk mm. to somebody and all that person's how i look at my job is is my job is to help them bring that out my job is not to say oh here's the here's pete's five steps to depression or anxiety or schizophrenia my job is to say you know i this is what i hear you you're telling me so you know and bounce it back at them and get them to go oh i can solve this by doing this because this is what i enjoy doing or this is what's comfortable for me and i imagine you've worked with clients before who just wanted the they wanted pete's list they, they yeah. wanted this, just tell me what to do and i'll do it you know they were in a compliance mindset to to get through their recovery yeah and i think it's an old you know it's, it's a it's a relatively uh it's a, that's an old model of of, thera of therapeutic interventions you know you mm -hmm. you know you would go to the oh well you, the guy just needs to work on you know gaining you know uh coping skills in and uh you know take medication adherence gain some coping skills and they'll be just fine and that's the secret sauce when when really what if it's not coping skills or what if it's not medication that this guy needs yeah what if he just needs someone to talk to for 30 to 40 minutes a day or two times a week or whatever the case may be yeah you know so this this podcast is not about uh specific therapeutic modalities but i want to just dive into something you said right now yeah. uh, which is you're t you were talking about uh, thoughts or about whether, whether something is true or not. And there is a, a paradigm shift that is encouraged in acceptance and commitment therapy that you're, you're not to be worried about whether this thought is true or false, but whether it is helpful. And, and I think people in recovery can get hung up on the rights and the wrongs that they hold in their own head, the shame that they've been carrying of what they think other people think about them. And that mm -hmm. can drive so much of their behavior, not just the, the sabotage, but also their belief that recovery can only happen one way right. know, or in one direction. And I, I, I'm, I'm encouraged by that shift in thinking to say, um, yeah. Okay. Let's, let's, let's take my weight for a minute. Okay. Uh, I'm, I think that I'm overweight, but is it helpful for me to have that thought every day, every morning and every night when I look in the mirror, mm -hmm. if it is not leading to, to change, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and it, and it also kind of dives in a little bit to some, some Rogerian, like Carl Rogers stuff of, of man, you you've been in your own personal hell some of it you've created some some other people have contributed to and to sit in a room with someone that just wants to see you for who you are as the best of who you could be mm -hmm. that is i i imagine people probably just almost feel a weight come off their shoulders the first time they can sit in a room with someone who is not trying to judge them and is just trying to help them mm -hmm. yeah i i mean i think that's the that's the secret sauce to a lot of treatment programs. It's not, I don't necessarily think it's what they say at treatment programs. 
I think it's just the support that they provide. And that support sometimes is is nonverbal. It's just sitting with that person and letting them talk about that that thing that they think or that thing that they believe and letting them letting them work that out in front of you and and in a non-judgmental open expressive way just being i don't know if it's necessarily it's the, if you're guiding them I, I, I maybe you're just a maybe you're just a soundboard you know just it just echoes off you and that's all that it is it's it's yeah you know when i first got into to working in therapy it was a lot of modalities like okay they're struggling with this use this modality they're struggling with this use this modality and after a while i started to figure like well all these modalities are great and they're and they're proven theories and they're you know smart guys all thought them up um but what about the person you know don't they have some don't they have some insight into their hmm. into their the solution for their dilemma don't they you know i can't say that you know, I can't say that some of the in my in my own recovery, I can't say that some of the the insights that I had in my own recovery benefited me enormously. You know, so yeah. why wouldn't it benefit somebody with schizophrenia or somebody with depression or somebody with anxiety or somebody with another person with substance abuse? You know, so how long into your recovery journey before you started working in the field and whether I think it was, it was about. I got into grad school when I was about two or three years sober, and then that was a couple of years, so about about four or five years of sobriety I was working in the field, and uh, pretty green, you know? I, I started <laughs> I started working in a field that I didn't want to work in. I, 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 you know, <laughs> I know, I know, I went to, I went to school thinking, like, I'm going to be a therapist, I'm going to be a couples and family therapist, and I'm going to work with couples and, and families, and I was like, the last thing I want to do is work with adolescents, and the last thing I want to do is work with drugs and alcohol, and my first job was an adolescent drug and alcohol therapist. That was my first <laughs> job, you know, so. Jackpot. It, yeah, it was sweet, you know. Oh, I can't wait to go to work, and for, and I, I went to work, for a solid year, scared to death, like because these are kids and they're coming off some pretty heavy drugs yeah. and they're mean. And I was like, man, they're going to kill me. I would come home to Tarsi and I'd be like, it was so rough. They like they called me all sorts of names today. Oh, and, yeah. And I and miraculously, I was actually noticing that I was pretty good at it. Like you can I could stand in front of somebody and they could be like, you know, you da screaming at after scream and I can be mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. And then and and work through it with them. But inside I'm going, Holy shit, like please don't, you know, please don't do anything that would you know, like this is really freaking me out what you're doing. So John Mullaney, the comedian, talks about this. He says that that like middle schoolers are the are the worst because they know exactly what you don't like about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> they can just call you out. Yeah, yeah. yeah, totally. My first intervention. Oh man, I get to the job and this, you know, they just throw me in a room with ten kids. They're like, here you oh go. Here's gosh. a group. Here's ten kids. I'm sweating right now. Yeah, you don't know them. Like I don't know them. You know, I don't even know their names. So the first thing I have to do is like, what's your name? They're like, you, what do you mean you don't know my name? I'm like, oh bro, this is gonna be good. But anyway, this girl's having a tough day, and so the the counselor pulls her aside and says, Oh, come on in. You should probably witness this. So, you know, kind of, you know, you know, this, uh, this is a learning opportunity, right? So he pulls me inside the room. He's talking with her. She's like, uh, she, uh, she was thinking about relapsing. She'd called her boyfriend to get some drugs brought into the unit. And, and, 
you know, he's jamming her up. He's like, you know, why would you, you know, what were you thinking? Tell me what, you, you know, what, and he's really going at her, confronting her about it. She's like, I didn't do that. Then he's like, that's bullshit. Of course you did. She finally breaks down, says, of course I did. Okay, you know, I did. I just wanted to get high and I don't know why. And so he works with her and she's, you know, she's emotional. She's, she's agitated. He's, you know, working with her. And I asked one question, like I was in the corner of the room and I said, you know, tell me, how do you feel about that? She's who the fuck are you? And I was like, Oh, uh, uh, um, you know, like she, you know, she was, t- she didn't, she was like, you know, she was pissed at me. I was like, I'm sorry. I think I even apologized. Like my bad. I didn't, I, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to provide a therapeutic intervention at that moment. I, I should have just kept it to myself. <laughs> just blend in yeah. to the wall. Yeah, totally. Oh just be, you know, just, just be here and now. But of course I opened my mouth and, and, and that's it, you know, so that that experience for me actually carried me a long way, and and uh, I still work with adolescents to this day. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, we were talking about it earlier. I still I moonlight with this adolescent drug diversion program, and it's totally exciting. And I'm so comfortable in a room of adolescents who are, yeah. you know, who are pissed off at you or pissed off yeah. at the world. It's like this is fabulous. You know, this is yeah. like, um, and it really set the stage for me. I think it really set the stage for me to do a lot of different things. Because after having that experience and working through that, my own anxiety when it came to mm-hmm. showing up to work every day, I was like, I can, I can, you know, I can branch out into things. So when I branched out into mental health, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be working with schizophrenics. Oh no. And I brought that same fear into the job, but schizophrenics are great. They're, they're, they're fun to work with. I was going to say, if you, I think if you can do youth, you can do anything. Youth SUD. I'm like, See, I oh think that gosh. too. But I, I, yeah. I mean, how many people do you talk to that think like that? I, I, I think like that. Like when I interview people, I'm like, if they have ex- adolescence experience, I'm like, oh, you can work with adults. No problem. Yeah. But if you have adult experience, I don't think that the reverse might works. might go backwards. But I do think that about crisis workers, you know, mobile crisis, crisis call center, you know, 23-hour crisis residential, peer respite, whatever. I, I think if you can do this work. You can work in any industry. Like yeah. nothing will phase, nothing will really push you, you know, that far. Right. So actually one of the intro questions you were, or when you were talking at the beginning, I wanted to, to inter- interject and ask this question, which is, is there experience outside of the uh, mental health and addictions industry that you might, that you tend to appreciate from someone who's interviewing for uh, a job at like where you work? Like, is there... You know, is there another fast-paced or high-stress environment that you've noticed there's a good correlation between them working well there and them working well at your facility? You know, uh, I once hired, I once interviewed a, a woman who was a flight attendant, mm-hmm. and I, uh, I, she had no mental health experience. <laughs> okay, and I thought to myself, like, what are you doing here? You know, and she kind of told me a little bit about. I think I even asked her, like, so you have no mental health experience? You know, what? How do you think that's going to translate? She's like, well. You know, I, I, I kind of, you know, have family stuff and, and going. And I said, you know, I noticed you were a you were a flight attendant. Tell me about that. She goes, oh, I flew with, I don't know what airline, but international flight. Okay. So it's, you know, plus nine hours on an airplane yeah. with people. And I thought to myself, like, you, and I said this, I said, you must have some stories. And she goes, oh, let me just tell you. And she goes into a few stories and I'm like, and how did you handle that? And she's like, well, I did X, Y, and Z. And I said, okay, all right, check, check that box. She handled crisis well in a tube at 35,000 feet. Hey, you know, I was like, this is impressive. She turned out to be 
a really strong Heck mental yeah. health worker. I was like, this is fantastic. <laughs> how how well do you think that translates? Yeah. You know, so uh, that's one example. But, you know, I've always thought, you know, wherever you're interacting with the public, I think those are great experiences. Yeah. Like I was a, I was a valet parker in, in co- I know, I, I know. I want you parking Dude, my want, car. Bro, bro, I was Jeez. a drug addict, alcoholic, valet <laughs> parker, just so you know. So it, was you that know, on the back of your vinyl jacket? Just high as hell parking people's cars, you know, like, well, oh, bro, is this your car? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just brought the, I brought the coolest car up for you. <laughs> so anyway, that job, in in some way, shape, or form, prepared me f- for dealing with people. And that's what mental health is. It's dealing with people. And there are so many scenarios where it's like, I had to think on my feet. I had to interact and engage. I had to, at times, come up with solutions. I had, at times, had to um, had to provide empathy. You know, when you think about it, like, you know, if, if I if I did bring up the wrong car or something like that, or didn't get the car fast enough, I had to look somebody in the eye and say, uh, well, uh, you know, I understand what you're going through. Let me get this, let me get this taken care of right away. Um, you know, I'm going to stop and get high on the way to get your car, but I will get your car. I promise you this, uh, you know, so, so those types of things, you know, I think it translates well. Now I wouldn't say that all valet parkers are going to be fantastic mental health workers, yeah. but, but I think customer service. I think that speaks. Like, I, I think customer exactly service has to. Too. It just has to be in there. Yeah. I'd, like uh, if uh, if somebody had worked like fast food, you know, yeah, okay, I was yeah. like, oh my gosh, you, yeah, you, you're the one thing standing in the way of them, their immediate gratification, and you know. I know. I once interviewed this girl who's an In and Out manager. She was a manager in In and Out, and I was like, I'm hiring you right now. Yeah. I didn't even really need to, and she unfortunately couldn't take the job in and out paid paid her too much oh, to yeah. leave us like so you're making more in and out than you are then she's like yeah i am i'm like well okay best of luck i i i and i think that was a missed opportunity i would have loved to have hired her because she's she would have been great well she would have been great in the kitchen too and i would have definitely come and visited that program but, oh yeah but uh and it reminds me of the in and out hat that you just had on a couple weeks ago when we were presenting <laughs> right. I, I hope we'll get to that i know i was thinking about that too oh like, what, what a great segue it was yeah right <laughs> <laughs> but before we get there um there's been this this tension and i or, or maybe, maybe a pendulum is a better a better description so um, I was fortunate during my internship at grad school to work with uh, veterans, um, mostly Vietnam veterans, and then some OIF, OEF veterans. Oh, bro, that and sounds awesome! It was oh, it was, it was the most uh, just eye-opening nine months of my you know professional existence. Wow. It was very at good. a VA. Yeah, they're called vet centers. So vet centers were opened after Vietnam, and they were opened um, by veterans from Vietnam. Four oh, veterans even cooler. Yeah. Oh, okay. So they kind of took, you know, the the recovery yeah. approach and said the best helpers are going to be people who just been there, done this. that. Yeah, yes, exactly. And so, uh, you know, I was fortunate to work in that in that system, but there's been there's just been a pendulum swinging, I think, in our mental health and addictions industry for a long time, and that is, you know, who's going to be the most helpful? The person with the degree and all the letters behind their name or after their name or the person who has been through it. And for a long time, there hasn't been a space for 
a person who possesses both of those characteristics. Yeah. Now I think that's changing, but I'm curious yeah. about because you, because you're you're an MFT, right? Yeah. Marriage and yeah. Family Therapist. So how have you have you been encouraged to to pick a side or have you been able to cultivate, you know, both and and kind of, you know, allow each part of you to to complement one another in a skill set you know what's that been I, like? I think I pick a side to be honest with you really? I, yeah I think I I think I I I'm biased towards the towards the peer okay towards the you know I you know whenever I meet and or hire peers I'm always like you know tell me your story I want to you know yeah I, because I can really relate to that um although I can't say that every time that I'm talking with somebody I share my I share my own personal journey uh, I, I do use it, but it's not, it's not like my, my go-to, you know, it, it's not, it's not the thing that I pull out all the time when I'm, when I'm talking with somebody. I, 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 I've in recovery, like when I was working drug and alcohol, it was just, it, it was just you, you, 95% of the workforce is recovering, mm-hmm. but in mental health, that's not necessarily the case. You know, mental health has, has, I think people with degrees who have who have profound professional experience and really great things. And some of them have personal experience. And I would, I would, I would lean towards the people with the personal experience. I think, um, you know, that's kind of just my bias, I guess. Okay. What I'm curious, what instances do you choose to tell your story is like, what, Mm. what, what what conditions? Oh man, that's a good one. Or do you avoid it intentionally I, sometimes? I think I, I, I think I, I don't necessarily, I avoid it, but I, I'm, I'm, it's hard for me to probably come up with a, with a scenario in which I'd be like, that's when I would talk about it. Um, you know, I, that's a, that's a, you know, you know, at the last CRA not the last CRA conference, but the one in Grand Rapids that we yeah. had when I was presenting, I had no intention of telling the audience that I was a recovering drug addict and alcoholic in my opening like dialogue. Uh-huh. But it just occurred to me, like, why wouldn't I say that in yeah. this room? Like, yeah. like, why wouldn't I tell this audience that? And, and it feeds so well into what I was talking about. Because what I was talking about was you know, looking at a person, at, at a person as, as, as the whole person. And often when we look at people, we only see what our eyes what our eyes tell us, and that's very little. And I I'm no longer, I'm not going to only I'm only going to see more once I start to engage that person and get them or have them start telling me about them. And so, in order to open that up, I said I, I'm going to be very honest with this audience, and I'm going to say, look, you wouldn't know this by looking at me, because look, I'm I, I don't know you just you just wouldn't I I don't think I don't think you could pull me out of a lineup like, oh, that guy, you know, that's the guy right there, you know. Yeah. Um, and it it fits so well. So that was an opportunity in which I was like, that was I think that was a great way to use it, and it really proved uh, it, it it was really effective. When working with with adolescents, I probably use it more. I think in that when I do that moonlighting thing with mm-hmm. uh, with California Youth Services, the drug diversion, mm-hmm. I use it more there. Okay. In mental health, I use it sporadically, occasionally. If somebody's maybe talking to me about some really some some struggling stuff and um and and if we're one to one 
Um, but I can't say that, that all the time that that's the scenario. I've used it in groups. I've led groups like on stages of change. You know, when I've done stages of change groups, I've said, you know, it's kind of the same thing that I said at CRA, which is, you wouldn't know this, but, you know, I've been sober this long. And, and you know, part of my story is, you know, is I get I get what pre-contemplation, contemplation, I, I get those stages, you know. Yeah. It, I get where most of you guys are at. It's, and it's, I, I, I think it's helpful. I think some of, some people tend to listen a little bit more when you're talking to them. Some people could give a hoot, you know, and some people are like, whatever. And I, I want people to have the latter reaction because it's so okay. Yeah. You know, not because they're apathetic, but just because it's not weird anymore. It's not. No. You know, and I, I I hope that we can just, we can make that um, less weird. So uh, as, as I was growing up, I noticed that my dad was in a lot of these unofficial clubs based on the... Um, the the automobiles or the 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 things that he owned okay yeah so at one time he had a corvette and uh when you have a corvette and you pass another corvette you know you do like you do the wave you know what i mean is there just, a corvette wave there's a cor- there, it's, 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 a, it's the, the 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 these unofficial ways they're very subtle you know sometimes yeah. you don't even take your thumb off of the wheel you just you know just oh. pop your pop your hand up when i was in when i lived in montana it was it's two fingers steering wheel in front two fingers two fingers two fingers okay Two fingers together, not like because you don't want to be a hippie in no Montana. Sign. No, yeah. not like bro. You know, you know, it's just two fingers. Just two fingers. They just come up. You could because you could drive with the other three. Yeah. Also in Montana, they give you directions by beer, so it's like oh, it's go down about half a beer, and then you turn left and you go about another quarter of a beer, and then you're good. Wow. Yeah. It's like Miller came in and <laughs> wanted to promote their products. So my so my dad was in the the corvette unofficial club he's in the motorcycle unofficial club no no official clubs okay no like biker gangs just anything where you would wave and nod he had a motorhome for a while so you know just oh. just you know, see another motorhome going the other side of the did highway he have just... a hat like when he got into the motorhome and to drive it did he have to put on he, the hat he didn't have like one trucker hat but he he was the he is the kind and, and i hope to be this way as as i continue into my uh, fatherhood years to you know buy a hat wherever you go you know oh like, fabulous yeah like monterey and you know Yellowstone. that says and, that like yeah it's a, in in like a like a shitty cursive <laughs> you know it, it, and <laughs> maybe it's hot pink because he bought it in the 90s or whatever oh yeah. yes yeah so anyways, largo <laughs> yeah so i'm saying all this because i imagine there's an unofficial club of people with lived experience yeah. who are also clinical professionals and oh definitely do, do you is it easy to to find each other? Do you have a wave, or do you have another, or, or is that oh, just so really common in the addiction community that like you know, yeah, everyone's got a story, and most of it is their own. You know, some some might be their parents or something. No, I I don't know if if we necessarily find each other, but I've but I often what happens is I may I might share my story and they share their story back at me. Um, I had this with a supervisor. I would have never suspected the guy, and uh, he I said you know I'm you know. I forgot how we were talking about it, but I mentioned it. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm sober. I go to I go to meetings. Da, da, da. He's like, oh yeah, me too. I mean, it was just like off the. It was just like off the cup. And from, I I can tell you though, just from my reaction, my reaction was, we're bonded, like we're bros, yeah. like we're you know, I get where you come from. You get where I come from. And he's uh, he's a great mentor to this day. 
Really? Yeah. Like he's he's one of these guys. He works he works with me. Uh, you know, he's my supervisor for a while, and then um, and then there was kind of a, a rearrangement, and so I got a new supervisor. But he was still you know still in Orange County, still working with me, and you know we would uh, you know I I I you know call him and say hey you know I, I want to bounce an idea off you or whatever, and he's just a great guy to bounce an idea off, and he gets me. He would often say to me like, uh, um, um. I got some I got some news to tell you. So go I know I know you're going to you're going to beat yourself up for a little bit over that. So go ahead and do that and then and then and then get back to work. <laughs> yeah. You know, because he knew how I take bad news, you know? Like uh, that's how I take bad yeah. news. Somebody says to me like you got a job performance issue, you know, I you know, I'm like, you know, oh they hate me, you know. I I do this woe is me and yeah. I beat myself up. I'm full of anxiety and worry and then I, I don't know. I reach a, a precipice. I go, okay, and I step over it, and yep. then I get right to, to fixing the problem. Mm-hmm. So, um, and he was very understanding of that. He just <laughs> knew, you know, he knew that that's how I worked, and it was great to have. But no, I, I, I'm going to ask him now, like, did we, did we ever have a handshake? Do we ever yeah, have a, did you ever, like a, I don't know, a couple Maybe we need a hat. Words. We need a hat, maybe. <laughs> that's what we need. Well, what, what, what's the, how do, how do people find a, a and and I'm I, if I'm calling out secrets then you can you you can pass on this one. Well, I don't know. I might be destroying traditions as we speak. You know, there is a tradition that says you know something about media, and I'm like ah, I might be destroying it, but I I don't you know this I, doesn't count as media. I uh, mean, f- listeners, I love you, but I I not. agree. I you know and 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 I AA I apologize <laughs> if I am so you know I'm still gonna go to me. Okay. You can't kick me out. I'm still okay. gonna go. So here's my question: Isn't there a a, a if you're on a cruise ship or if you're on vacation yeah. or something, there's a there's a way to find the meeting, right? And it, yeah, friends of friends of Bill W. They friends say, of Bill W. Yeah, okay. they say that you know. Okay. And I've it's you know it's one of those corny things about AA. That's what they're full of, like corny sayings. But yeah, I've said that to. I've introduced myself like that, like yeah, because you might not know, you might see somebody out in the street and you're like, hey, how you doing? And they might like, uh, do I know you? Like, yeah. I'm a friend of Bill's. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they might be with somebody, and I don't want to out them. Oh, my gosh. So there's, there's that secret been, language. I've probably been there when people have, yeah, and they said friend of Bill. And yeah. They, my uncle, yeah. who's been sober for a long time, he throws that crap out all the time. He's okay. like, that's how he introduces everybody. Like, if you ever, you know, yep. this is this is Jim. He's a friend of Bill W's. This is Mike. He's a friend of, and I'm like, I'm like, okay. You See, know. when you say Bill W, I think Bill Walton, and I'm like, I don't want to be friends with Bill Walton. <laughs> no, Bill W, Bill Wilson? I think that was his Throw name. Throw it down. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. Um, so but, you work for this company, Telecare, and I'm 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 gonna toot their horn a little bit and then you can uh you can yeah, tell sure. us more. But um one of the largest crisis residential providers in the country, maybe the largest. Yeah, um, totally. All all along the West Coast. Um they've been huge supporters of the Crisis Residential Association, mm-hmm. uh sponsoring the conference and and um and being members you know you you sit on the board of cra with as do i which is great but um i guess tell me a little bit about the the telecare journey or what you really appreciate about their the crisis work that they do you know i think telecare is a fantastic organization and um it's one of these organizations that i'm i am really proud to work for um they uh they got a mission uh that uh, you know they want to help people with in in all aspects of behavioral health and they and they really strive to meet that mission on a daily basis they you know uh they they expanded 
a variety of different programs uh, and the ones that I've been a part of the crisis res programs they I mean when I first came on in telecare in night you know in 2012 there were I want to say there were like three or four crisis maybe even just two two or three only a handful of crisis res programs Whoa. and in the and in the eight years that I've been with the organizations it's grown uh, astronomically you know they they really grew that product type and um and, and and we and as an organization they do that product type very well and they've done it in a variety of different counties and it's been a huge success so i um I, it's something i'm really proud of as far as as far as working with the organizations how how well we grew crisis residential services um and can continue and, and you know toot the horn and continue to grow crisis residential services mm -hmm. we continue to you know to bid on on contracts and and uh and it's just fantastic to see um so uh, you know i think that i think it's a it's a corporation with a lot of integrity it's a corporation with you know that's got a real um it it's got a it's got a real strong uh motivation to uh provide premier services and uh support staff as best as they can um, you know, this it, working in behavioral health is not the easiest on staff. There's, you know, it's it's a it's a very it, it can you know there's a yeah. large burnout. I mean, yeah. you know, all that stuff. Um, and telecare does a really good job in in holding long term employees. It, you know, I res I, I really res respect that. And I'm I'm not one that stayed with companies too long. I was you know I was kind of bouncing around before I landed in in telecare, and it's been great since. So, and they're you know they they sponsor and support great ideas like yeah. cra so yeah. um you know when they see something that's 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 really going to make a change and make a difference you know they're they're out there supporting it so yeah all right so i'm, the, I'm gonna i'm gonna dance around here to get to our next point which probably at this point in the podcast is not a surprise to anyone but um alas here we go <laughs> <laughs> so there's this study uh that there's to, to get back to the the lived experience versus mm -hmm. clinical expertise there 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 are still a lot of questions left to be answered in our industry um one of those you and i uh, tried to um, broach in our presentation at the crisis residential conference yeah. a few weeks ago which was how can we be the most helpful or what is the secret sauce that makes crisis residential work yeah you know is it the length of stay is it the number of groups is it the type of staff you have in your program like we we know it's been researched but not in that level of granularity and similar questions exist for crisis call centers too and there's a study the, the only study that really can can say with some definitiveness who is the most helpful on the on the calls and it wasn't people with lived experience and it wasn't people with clinical expertise the the factor was how long a person has been working on the crisis line. And so people who are good at it, who did it for, they're good at it because they've done it for a long time. And mm -hmm. that is their best indicator that they're going to be good at it or continue to be good at it. Okay. Oh, yeah. So let's take that, um, that thought and try and apply it into uh, the crisis residential world, which you and I spend a lot of mm -hmm. our time in. How do we get employees in crisis services to stay as long as they can 
for wh- while assuming continued effectiveness and interest and appropriateness in their career. You know, mm. how do we optimize? How do we get a direct support professional instead of staying on average for two years yeah. to stay for four or to stay for five or to stay in the company for 10 or 15 years and not five to seven years? Like, yeah. How do we because I, I think that's one of the keys to long-term success of a crisis program is if you can get people to who like the work to stay in the work and not have to leave because of the pay right the in and out thing you just said or that they can't even come in to start working there because they can't get paid enough to make it worth their time but but how do we get people to work in these programs that want to work there and kind of optimize the workforce where everyone's doing what they want to do right for as long as they can feasibly do it great question i mean i i don't think you can Overlook pay. I think pay has to be part of the conversation, but I don't think it's the entire conversation. Um, when when I often think of uh, uh, the book Drive by Ooh, Daniel Pink. Daniel Pink, my man. He talks about he talks about if you could get a workforce that looks at their job like their hobby, you know, you're that you're going to have long term, reliable effective employees because they don't look at it as a job they look this is this is fun for them this yeah. is what they enjoy doing yes and i think that and that's it that is a it's a skill set that's it's i think you got to look at one of the factors i think you should look at is what growth opportunities are you providing so if you're bringing someone in at the ground level it's like a i don't know a residential counselor mental health tech you know that that uh that that opening spot in a crisis res program, right? Whatever frontline staff, what growth opportunities are you, are you able to supply? So where can they go from there? Mm-hmm. Can they go to uh, mental health tech, residential counselor supervisor? So then they get a feeling for, okay, so now I'm, you know, I'm doing my job, but now I'm supervising a group of others of others. Cause I've been here a while. And so I'm teaching and I'm teaching what I know and giving back a little bit of yes. what I've learned. Um, and then where do you go from there? Um, you know, do you then, uh, you know, I don't know, middle management, clinical skills. The, the struggle seems to be is that as you move up, this is what I saw at Crisis Res, is as you move up the ladder, each, not each, but some of those moves require a, a license or an educational component that's, yeah. that's, that, that requires a schooling. So if you go from a residential counselor to say like a, uh, an LPT or LVN, well, it requires the schooling and the license to do that. It's a move up and it's in, uh, or if you go into a clinician position, same thing, it requires you the schooling. So the only way you're, you know, so how do you provide that with and make it accessible for everybody? So I hate to, I hate to pose a question with a question, (laughs) but you know, that's the, so, but really it's, it's providing those ladders as people move up. And I don't know, I don't know how that looks, but the organization Mm -hmm. of that, um, you know, and I think there are organizations out there. I know that, you know, Telecare is one of these organizations that provides, uh, you know, provides scholarships to some people for trainings and those types of things. Yeah. If they want to move up, those are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I found some of the best employees that I've had, um, a couple come to mind where they they came in as uh, as residential counselors. They start, they were in their undergraduate work. They, they they stayed through undergraduate, got into a master's program, stayed through, graduated in a master's program, were promoted to clinician after a master's program, stayed as a clinician, moved into, you know, a, a supervisory position. You know, you know, the, the, the those are 
those are people that are on the right track as far as as far as those growth opportunities um but what is the organization doing to support that you know that's that's a tough one because that person's obviously doing a lot of that on their own do you know what i'm saying like they're going to school and this the the organization's not doing that that person is doing that the organization's providing them the opportunities though what i i called it when i was going through it when i was moving up in positions i called it this the super or sucker complex which is, am I getting this promotion because I'm super or because I'm a sucker and nobody else was willing to take this this position, which is you oh, know, gosh, incredibly yeah. difficult. You get a little bit more pay, but it's not commensurate with the additional amount of work. Um, it, but I imagine with a, an organization like Telecare or anybody that operates multiple kinds of crisis services in a region, mm-hmm. right? Um, you just have more opportunities. So when I was supervising a six-bed crisis home, to save money, I was the manager and the clinician. Yeah. So if anyone's coming through there trying to get their master's degree and they happen to love crisis and they're in a county that has 250,000 people and one six-bed crisis home, uh, their next job opportunity goes mean, means my job is not there. You know, that's mm-hmm. the only way they can they can do what they right. want to do. Right. But if the same crisis provider also owned a home, the county to the north and the county to the east, yeah. then that's three times as many opportunities to grow. Yeah. And if those are different sizes, then you might even have more. Or even chances. different prog- program types. I mean, yes. you know, you could get your feet wet. Yeah. D- d- you know, try, try out patient community, you know, FSP work, you know, try inpatient psych, see if you like that. Um, uh, I think that's, you know, an opportunity at least in, at least with telecare, that's a, that's a fantastic opportunity that the company has to offer its employees, which is you, you know, if you are in a, in, in a populated county that that has other programs in other counties or 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 other programs just within that county you can you can try out other programs yeah um which which i think helps a person um grow those 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 innate skills that they have Mm -hmm. you know you've Um, heard of traveling nurses Right, how they can just go different, yeah. different places in the country, and they can get a job in Hawaii for six months, and then get a job in Laredo, Texas, for a year, or yeah. whatever they want to do. You know, they just do contract work and go see the world. How cool would it be if all the different crisis provider types could get together, and they could have a network so that if you wanted to do this work but you wanted to do it somewhere else, maybe they had like a certification or something, like the all the the industry had yeah. a certification. So, hey, if you want to do you know, supervisory, like, like shift supervisor, uh, here, you can rely on the experience you had at the last place you went. And if you're moving across the country because of your spouse's job, well, that's okay. Cause you're going to get to work in the same type of crisis services. Yeah. Like, you know, let's make it cool. You know, like, <laughs> let, like, let's not, I, I, let's keep people in jobs that they want to be in for as long as it makes sense for them to be in them. Yeah. I think that's, that's when the workforce is going to be like happy and fulfilled yeah. is, you know, not, not when I have to move out of my job into some administrative role that I hate, but I can stay in crisis work as long as I want to. And I think what we're talking, we're, we're, we're kind of talking about this, but also I think that an aspect of it is, is, and I, this is my experience in working in the, in, in telecare and the mental health field that I work in today is get them to drink the Kool-Aid a little bit. Like telecare was one of the, the one, the one organization that it had a mission statement. And when I, when I heard the mission statement, 
it rang true to me. And when I saw their, I saw their efforts to support that mission statement, I was like, that's, that's pretty freaking cool. I mean, look at, look at what they're doing, you know, look at the, look at the type of person-centered, empathetic, non-judgmental, supportive treatment, supportive behavioral health services that they're providing. And, um, and look at how supportive they are to their employees. And, the, and all, I mean, the whole picture was like, this is, this is really attractive to me. Mm-hmm. If you can find that person that drank that Kool-Aid, that's like, I can, I can agree with that mission and support that mission statement. Then I think that's a component as well. Now that's a little harder to, that's a little harder to find, you know, cause you could re- like interview them and like, here's our mission statement. Will you support this? You know, it's like I, I, most people would need a job right now. They'd say, oh, yeah, hell yeah, I'll support that. You know, and then you get them in the job and they're like, Psh, you know, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, what mission statement? Well, you mentioned that great book, Drive. Um, and I'm going to mention another one that I'll recommend to you and to our listeners. It's called Everybody Matters by Bob Chapman. And it's the story of this company called Barry Waymiller, uh, which is in, I think it's in the Midwest. And he just takes a very different approach to the work that they do. And it's nothing. It's nothing inspirational, the work that they do. And that's that's what blows my mind is like some for-profit companies have more allegiance from their employees than the nonprofits that are doing the actual like real meaningful work, but they can't engage their base. They yeah. can't engage their workforce to like, you know, believe in what everyone's trying to do together and, you know, totally. make some sacrifices and things like that. But I also, so. you know, I'm going to interrupt you for a second because you reminded me of that part in, in Drive that Pink talks about where he's... Yeah, he and he uses the tech industry a lot, and I don't know. If, but if you could find this in behavioral health, which is there was a story about how the tech industry has—I forgot what they call it—but something like a like a eighty twenty or something like oh, yeah. that, which That's means eighty percent of your time you're doing your job job, but then you are allowed twenty percent to do whatever the hell you want. You want to you want to you want to design pancake batter, design pancake batter. You want to. You know, you know, do nothing, do nothing. But it's twenty percent of your time that you can do whatever you want, and the the inspiration and motivation that comes out of that is amazing. If the behavioral health field could tap into that a little yes. bit as easily as the tech field can, because I think tech's very flexible when it comes to that, um, that would be an interesting. Uh, that would be an interesting. Uh, not I'm not gonna say study, but interesting. Um, uh, modality to add to your corporation is how you could do that. Yeah, so I tried that at our crisis residential program. I, I couldn't do a day a week, you know, to like give the whole place. Was that what it was? One yeah. day a week that Pink Google, talks about? Yeah, Google, 3M, at Atlassian. I think like all these. They companies. do a day a week. Wow. Yeah. Holy at Fridays. Smokes. Yeah, or they'll do they'll, some. One of them calls it a FedEx day, where they have to, they, which means that they have to overnight, like in, in an overnight, they have to have like have their ready their idea ready to present to on friday to the company you know like all oh, these different teams do but this is what like gmail and google drive and all these other ideas like they all came out of the free time the 20 percent that people had to yeah. do these things so i did something called ici time which was innovation creativity and improvement project and so instead of once a week once a month i would give most of my staff coverage from like an on-call person or something else and then they could work on whatever they wanted it just had to be relevant to work and they had to report back to me about what they did yeah well if you just give your staff some damn space to think and not just do things all the time 
They're amazing. Yeah. Humans are incredible. Break them out of the mundane. I mean, that's yes. what I found. So I, I found this in crisis residential work is there's a mundane that goes, you know, I, I go to work. The phone rings. I answer the phone. I do an intake. I intake the person. I, I run a group. I chart, I chart on the group. I go home. I wake up. I go to work. The phone rings. I, you know, there's this, there's this mundane. I want to say mundanity, but that's not a right word. Mundanity. Let's, mundanity. Call, let's do it. That's. I'm making a hat. Yeah. It's going to say mundanity, mundanity on it. Um, and a wave. I'll, I'll have a mundanity wave. Anyway, <laughs> the, the uh, if you break them out of that, I think there will be, there will be genius level, uh, uh, uh things coming out of that. Mm-hmm. You, you know, um. And I often tried this, and the pushback I got from my employees was, when do we have time? Like, I'd be like, what, what kind of groups do you want to run? I don't know. You know, when do I have time to think about what kind of groups I want to run? When I got to do, answer the phone, do an intake, yeah. chart on the five people that I have to chart on, and then, uh, you know, wake up and do it again. And um, so a lot of that fell on, on you know, maybe leadership. And then so leadership was like, okay, here are some ideas. But then the employees are like, those aren't good ideas. So it's, it's this, if you can get, if you can give them the opportunity to do it, yes. the time. Yeah. And, and where I found that to be important is the cost of hiring is just enormous. Like I went through an exercise with HR several years ago to just say, how much does it cost to hire a new frontline staff? You know, what was the number? was between two and five thousand dollars to get them trained to post I bet the you job. It's twice as much now the, probably well the lost time the, the overtime you have to pay staff you yep. know so if you could take if you could look at your current employees and say they are straight 24 karat gold and we need to protect them we need to keep them here how about if we invest a thousand dollars into them to try and keep them to stay yeah not, not just bumping up their salary but like how about if three, four times a year, I provide coverage for a full day so that they can actually do some, you know, that might add six months to their, their employment. And in a place that has 18 month turnover, that's, that's 30% increase. Like that's great. You know, but we, we take the, we take the other, we wait until they leave and then we go like, Oh, you know, now we got to fill these positions. But that was always my rub is like, we could do so much more if I could just get everybody to stay yeah. and feel taken care of. Yeah, my favorite is you provide an exit interview, and then at the exit interview, they give you all these just oh, yeah. these just delicious ideas. You know, they're like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I'm leaving, I'm leaving." So here's some good ideas. <laughs> you know, do less of this and more of this, and you're like, you know, bro, where were you? Where were you eight weeks ago? Or where were we? Why yeah. didn't we ask? Yeah, why didn't we ask? Or what? You know, why yeah. wasn't I taking notes? Did you ever tell me this before? Yeah, you know? the mundanity so. thing is interesting because we were talking at the top of the podcast that like you are comfortable in unpredictable environments, oh, yeah. you know, but there can be a predictability of doing the same seven to ten tasks over and over again, even if the people are different and the problems are you know just a little yeah. variable. Yeah. You know? Um, so we're getting close to the end of our time together, Pete, but I want to ask you, um, you don't have to look very far right now to find, to, to, to find, uh, sources of discouragement. Um, as we're recording this, we are, uh, what, seven months into a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's just a lot of uncertainty in different spaces. Behavioral health is, is, um, no stranger to, uncertainty whether it's with funding or with um just 
acuity of cases and things like that and and we said earlier that like this work isn't for the faint of heart but how do you find your your source of hope or strength or resilience right now and you know how is that getting you through whatever you're going through personally or professionally Mm, right now man you know i lately i found a, a, a a real sense of resilience um in that we've been at this for seven months, right? Seven months. And that people are still showing up to work. Like when this originally Mm -hmm. happened, I was really, I was freaked out as a manager. Like, oh no, half my staff is going to call off and not come into work. And some, some people did, but not as much as, not as much as I had in my head. You know, my head was saying like, oh, 50% or, and it was like maybe one person, and uh, everyone else showed up at their job and they continued to show up. And I find a, I find, I find a lot of hope and a lot of resilience in that. Um, you know, I, I work with some really great people and uh, um, they, they st- still come to work. They smile, they laugh, they like to have a good time. They got to, they got to wear a mask or, or a face shield or something. Um, and, and they're washing their hands and they're doing the, they're doing the protective measures and, and all that, but they're still, they're still laughing and smiling mm. and, and having a good time at work. They're still they're still talking to those those people that are that that are under our care, you know. Um, you know, we we were run. I was running a crisis res when this thing happened, and I was like, well, you know, you know, we can't stop taking people. You know, we just we're not going to be able to do that. I I told my staff like this is you know we're just we're not going to be able to not take people, and um. They were like, we're okay with that. Okay. You know, we'll, we'll just have to set some parameters. And they, they rolled with the punches. They might have been nervous. They might have been anxious. And they might have expressed that. But they still rolled with the punches. And they, they did their job. And it was, that was really awesome to see. So, because, I mean, I was, I was anxious. Yeah. You know? I didn't get the... Crisis workers didn't get the... And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to sound probably bitter. But crisis workers didn't get the luxury of phoning it in. You know, I got friends who work in industries that they're like, well, I just work from home now. You know, I've been working at home for the last seven months. And, and now they're, you know, they'd say, oh, it really sucks. I'm working from home. I, I get a little bit bitter inside and I'm like, kind of like, well, that's nice for you. You didn't, you got to stay home and safe and sound in, in wherever the hell you live, you know, in your living room. And I went to a crisis residential program every day. So and then after I got done with that, now I'm going to an inpatient psych facility every day. So, yeah, you know, and you complain about maybe you complain. This is I'm sounding bitter, man, but you complain about wearing a mask to the grocery store. But like I wear a mask like every day at work and I'm not stoked about it. But and new people are coming in. Yep, new people are are coming in. And, you know, and, and some of them, we have test results and some of them we don't. So it's like, well, I don't know. You know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to treat them, right? We're going to treat them like a human being. We're going to treat them like a person that's, that deserves these services. Well, so, that's th- and I apologize to anybody out there who works from home. I didn't mean to sound bitter, but it's just, it, no. it seems to be my reality. Pete's, so Pete's coming for you guys. 
So <laughs> this, this, we're going to record a second episode, and it's just going to be, it's gonna be Pete's rant. Pete's bitterness. The bitterness <laughs> of Pete. <laughs> <laughs> what I love about what you said, it, and I'm, I'm, part of me is an existentialist at heart. You know, Viktor Frankl, uh, Holocaust Gosh. survivor, and you know all that stuff. It's like if you pe- if you peel everything away, you know, are we still good to each other? Are we still go- are we still going to choose? That is such a fantastic way to look at are, life. Are we still going to choose to love people? Are we still going to choose to care for them and do what we're made to do? Yeah. Or are we going to get hung up on the details and be like, well, my my hope or my compassion or my love is conditional. Yeah. You know, and it's based on uh, a full assurance of safety and and these things and and you know people I I. I would not ask for a pandemic again in my life. I think, you know, I'm like, I could do without two out of 10 would not recommend. Yeah. No, I could do without stars on Yelp. (laughs) But, but, but that being said, we're all learning things about ourselves. Yeah. And, and, and that's good. It's good for us to, to learn uh, about, and and gosh, humans are so freaking resilient. Humans are just resilient. Behavioral health workers are resilient. I I mean, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm just going to give a shout out to behavioral health workers. They are so resilient. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't see, you know, I don't know about the Google guys. I don't know about the, you know, the accountants that are work. I don't know about those. Are they resilient? Are they as resilient as behavioral health workers? I, I, I'm biased, but I don't think so. Yeah. I, I really don't. You could put a behavioral health worker in, in a three alarm fire and that behavioral health worker is going to, gonna work yeah you throw an accountant into a fire they're gonna be like well let me run the numbers on this one <laughs> let, me, let me see here yeah Pete, my my accountant the... base is going way down after sorry, this podcast sorry. Today. i'm picking on accountants aren't oh i dentists gosh. i'll pick on dentists all right about that. all right pete this has been just such a, a blessing and um i just I the last thing i want to say is um congratulations on 19 years of recovery thanks buddy um what's cool about all the work that you've put in is you know, we get to meet and like, you get to do what I think you're made to do. And I'm sure you've, I know you've been helpful to the people that I've, uh, you know, been privy to see you work with. And, and I can only imagine the footprint that you've been able to leave on the people that you work with because you've put in the work, you know, because it's just a, we're six feet apart, but I'm giving you a hug right now. I can feel it. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like a little spoon. All right, man. Uh, thanks for, thanks for being with me, buddy. Hey dude, any, any (laughs) time, bud. Thank you to my guest, Pete Hyland to learn more about telecare, visit telecarecorp.com to learn more about the crisis residential association, visit crisisresidentialassociation.org.